to the Underground Christian. This is episode 5 on September 7th, 2021. We've been talking about the pandemic. We've been talking about the biological immunization shot that uh, people have been taking. Today I want to talk about something that is important in the Bible but isn't usually expressly discussed. It is, what does it mean to be a human being? That actually factors into the end times quite a bit on quite a number of important levels. So before we get into what that might, the implications might be for our current era, let's find out what the Bible has to say. What does it mean to be a human being according to God? What does it mean to be a human being according to man? Are they the same thing? Well, let's start with biology online. That's a, that's a man resource. Let's see what uh, man thinks that a human being is. According to biology online, man is a bipedal primate belonging to the genus Homo, especially Homo sapiens. This is the definition that's used by government. This is a definition that's used by academia. It's the definition that's used by the medical community, and it's the definition that's used by atheists who hate God. That is the definition that is prevalent everywhere in our culture. So what is God's definition? What does God say a human being is? Well, to, do, to find that out, of course, it is not defined explicitly anywhere in the Bible, but we can deduce what it is by looking at different elements of the Bible and seeing what it says. First of all, God says man is a body, a body that comes from dust. In other words, it comes from material things, it comes from matter. Uh, Genesis 2.7, seven says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So we are, first of all, we are a material thing. We are a material object. God then goes on to say in Ecclesiastes 12.7, Then the dust, that's, that's us, will return to the earth as it was. The spirit will return to God who gave it. Okay, so now there's two, two things. We have, uh, we have dust or we have matter and we have something called spirit. Spirit is a component of what makes a human being. In Matthew 16, 26, we see something else. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? This is Jesus speaking. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So now in addition to matter, the, the body, and spirit, we have something called the soul. These are the three primary components that the Bible uses to describe what a human being is. We are body, spirit, and soul. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, they are all explicitly combined. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God sees as a human being. The soul, it's our personality and emotional nature. We're going to see this in a moment. And the spirit is the life force that comes from God. It's, it's kind of like energy, but it has a nature to it. So here are some of the things that God says about these three things. First, the soul and body are together but separate. In Matthew 10, 28, it says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So the body and the soul go together. The body is destructible, but the soul is not destructible, at least not by human beings. There's also a distinction between the body and the spirit. According to James 2.26, For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, and I'll just stop there, there is an, a relationship between the body and the spirit. They're together but separate. However, in this case, death, and what we think of as death, bodily death, is defined as the separation of the spirit from the body. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, 
So when those two things separate, you get physical death. So the question initially might be, are the spirit and the soul the same thing? Well, they're related, but they're not exactly the same thing. The spirit comes from God and can return to God, Ecclesiastes 12.7, because it is the connection to God. It is the life force from God. The soul is the essence of each person, and it can be separated from God and from the human spirit. Jesus talks about destruction that can occur to both the body and the soul, but he doesn't mention the spirit because the spirit of a person does not get destroyed since it comes from God. It simply returns to God. The body and the soul are, con are what get condemned by God to hell in Matthew 10.28. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So there's no talk of spirit in hell, it's soul and body. Now, the word used here for destruction is different than the word Jesus used in the same passage for killing the body, right? So he says, don't worry about those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Those are two different words. In the first case, kill, as in the body, is apoktini. Hmm, it's more tiny. It means to put to death or to kill outright. It refers to the departure of the soul and spirit from the corporeal body. The second word, destroy, as, as in, you know, destroy soul and body in hell, a pole esai means to destroy fully, either literally or figuratively. So the latter destruction refers to the essence of man, and it occurs at the great judgment of Revelation 20, where it says, um, it is appointed once for man to die, and after that the judgment. That's Hebrews 9.27. So that judgment is the judgment of Revelation 20. So once for man to die is talking about our corporeal death, our, our physical death. So we are separated from our corporeal body once, meaning the soul and the, and the spirit are separated from the body. But the rest of us, that is the soul and the spirit, lives on somewhere until the great judgment. Christians are promised to live with Jesus while we wait for his return, whereas unbelievers are destined to live somewhere else, which the Bible calls Hades, otherwise known as the abode of the dead. All people who have ever lived will be raised on the great judgment day. That term means resurrection. That's what it's talking about. Christians talk a lot about resurrection, the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of Christ. The Bible says all of us are going to be resurrected into a new and perfected body on that day. John gave a report of his vision of that day in Revelation 20 when he said, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Well, souls don't stand. Spirits don't stand. They don't have anything to stand with. But bodies stand. These are bodies modeled on Jesus' resurrected and perfected body. Some people will be resurrected to eternal life with God in a new body that can't get sick, injured, or die. Other people will be resurrected into a new body that cannot get sick, injured, or die, but will be living in a place that the Bible calls hell, otherwise known as the lake of fire. It is a place apart from God. They will be living in their body, and they will, which can experience all the things of hell, but can't be destroyed. This is why Jesus said, Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, Matthew 10, 28 destroy, not kill, because the new body can't be killed. It can, however, be destroyed in the context of utter destruction of what it means to be a human, the humanity of a person. 
It will be a body with a soul in a perpetual state of punishment in a place that is not a nice place to be, and that will utterly destroy the humanity of the person. Now, some people think, how could God do such a thing? That must be a, he must be a monster. But, you know, they're wrong. Such a God is completely just when he condemns a person who rebels against him because that rebellion against a sovereign king is punishable by destruction. Nevertheless, it's not God who ultimately condemns us. It's we ourselves because God offers us a choice. We can either accept him and his position of authority and inherit everything good that he can provide, or we can reject him and his position of authority and inherit everything evil that man has ever imagined and probably a lot more. He gives us the choice, and it's a permanent choice one way or the other. Why would he offer us a permanence in heaven, but not a permanence in hell? That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Ultimately, it's each person who decides where we're going to go. So, in other words, there's a lot riding on the decisions that we make while we're on this earth concerning our eternal future. We can decide to follow God, or we can decide to follow man. It's God's way, or it's man's way. The problem is most people don't like God's way, and they prefer man's way, which is why Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. That passage is directly referring to the two options that we have while we're on this earth. Man's way is a lot easier to find and follow than God's way because it's easy to live for ourselves rather than God, especially today in the 21st century with all this technology and professional expertise and all the material goods that we have everywhere. We could be living in a movie titled Man Knows Best. We have to look and search for God's way because it's hidden underneath all the self-serving economic and political interests of, of our era. It's a lot harder to travel down God's way because Satan makes man's way so luxuriously simple. Do as thou wilt is the whole of the law, according to Satan's followers. Now, I don't know what percentage of humanity makes it into Christ's kingdom, but Jesus tells us it's less than those who miss out on it. I, for one, don't really want to miss out on that kingdom. So let's go back to what makes us human because that is what this episode's all about. Being human as opposed to being something else. There's a fourth element to being human that the Bible talks about, and it's the mind. The mind is the reasoning part of us. In Isaiah 1.18, God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. God's big on reasoning because that's the tool he uses to convey his revelations and instruct us in the finer points of wisdom. We have to reason through the material he presents. It's a thinking process. There are no shortcuts to take and no crib notes we can get to, you know, pass the test. God's ways are not man's ways, and we have to study them to understand them. Secular atheists will tell you that the mind is found within the brain. And most, you know, medical professionals will tell you that too. And we all know that the brain has something to do with the mind. That's no secret. Obviously, the brain has something to do with the mind. Christians also know, or they should know, that the mind cannot be generated by the brain because the mind does not die when the body dies. We do not go to be with the Lord as a mindless, ethereal soul spirit. That sounds a lot like the popular conception of a ghost. 
No, we go in a heightened state of mindfulness, wakefulness, and awareness. Do you believe that's an accurate picture of the Christian post-death? If you do, then you know that the brain does not generate the mind and the thinking process. It can't. Now, the brain has something to do with the mind and the thinking process, obviously, but they're not one and the same thing. And then finally, there's something that the Bible refers to as the heart. The heart, in the biblical sense, does not refer to a muscle, but to something less concrete. It's also a common concept out in the culture. Dictionary.com defines this kind of heart as the center of emotion, especially as contrasted with the head as the center of intellect. Or, alternately, the center of total personality, especially with reference to intuition, feeling, or emotion. Both of these definitions, they center around emotion. So apparently Hollywood agrees that emotions are central to the heart because a lot of film time has been devoted to that idea. Here are a few movies, just, you know, to get into the modern culture, a few movies with the term heart in the title. Let's see what it is about these movies that they think is a heart. The first one, In the Heart of the Sea. It's a, it's a wailing tale. It doesn't refer to an emotion necessarily. It refers to the center of something, though, the heart of the sea. Wild at heart. Well, that's obviously something about emotions. Crazy heart. Same thing. Angel heart. Same thing. Whisper of the heart. That's a love story. Same thing. Where the heart is. It's emotional. A mighty heart. It's emotional. Same thing. Lonely hearts. Same thing. And, of course, the all-time blockbuster favorite, brave heart. That's basically the same thing. So the culture thinks that the term heart really refers to an emotional center. Now there's other things that go with it, love, compassion, kindness, courage. These are the, thing, these are the central themes of these movies and, and that idea. But these are character traits. They're very important, but they're not what the Bible means by heart. It's more complicated than simple character traits, as illustrated by the following example from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now here, heart and spirit are distinct, but they're also related. A dirty heart wrong equals a wrong spirit. It becomes a clean heart, which equals a right spirit. It's possible that it could be talking about emotions, but it also could be something else. Now Jeremiah 17.10 gives us some additional insight into what it could be. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Here, the heart and the mind are distinct from each other, but they're also related. Both the heart and the mind affect the essence of what a person is, which is demonstrated by the person's deeds. The deeds reflect the heart and the mind. In Proverbs 21.2, we get another insight into this mysterious heart. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Here, the heart sees our actions as being right and moral, but God judges the heart and finds them otherwise. Now, the term ways signifies a comparison against a standard. It would seem that the heart, from a human perspective, may not measure correctly when compared to God's perfect standard. The reason's simple, according to Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart actively deceives, and the first person who is deceived by the heart is ourselves. We do not have the perspective, that is the standard, to see our heart and its outworkings for what they actually are. Obviously, the heart cannot be just emotions, although emotions are clearly part of the heart. 
CompellingTruth.org is a good workable definition for the idea of a biblical heart. The heart is part of a man's spiritual makeup. It is the place where emotions and desires begin. It is that which drives the will of man towards action. This explains why every way of man is right in his own eyes, regardless of how evil those ways might be. We cannot perceive the wretchedness of our own heart without the absolute standard of comparison that comes from God. And most of the time, we reject that standard because it conflicts with the contents of our heart. Most people assume that their heart is an appropriate standard for their emotions, desires, and behaviors because they judge on a relative scale. We're never quite as wretched as many other people around us, especially when we evaluate wretchedness on an item-by-item -item basis. So by comparing our own thoughts, words, and deeds to those of others around us, we can usually come out looking pretty good. While we judge our own actions on a relative sliding scale, we judge other people's actions against whatever fixed standards seem good to us in that moment, subject to being changed as we see fit, of course. This is why the heart is deceitful above all things and why we need an external God to guide our ways. We need to exchange the flawed and debased heart we were born with for an external fixed standard of measurement so we can assess the degree of actual virtue and righteousness in ourselves and others. Virtue and righteousness as defined by God. Now, we can construct a proper human being from the following components that God put together. A human being is a physical body that interacts with material reality and a spirit that comes from God and produces life, and a soul that forms our innermost character, and a mind that processes information and reasons, for better or for worse, and a heart that provides the emotional impetus and desires for action. Now, it's likely that the heart and the mind are simply elements of the soul, since God made us as a three-component being in his image, his image being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are body, spirit, and soul. But regardless, this complex entity is what God calls a person. At the center of each person is his or her heart. At the center of each heart is our treasure. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6.21 Now I'm concerned that health has become the treasure in most people's hearts. When health becomes our treasure, we will do everything we can to obtain it. We will sink endless amounts of money into it. We will change our lifestyle, change our diet, change our job, change our friends. We will take any pill or potion that a health authority says will improve our health. We might even curse at or threaten people who we believe threaten our health. We might even shun our brothers and sisters in Christ if we think they threaten our health. When health becomes our treasure, we will do anything to secure it. When does a desire to be healthy become an obsession with a health treasure? Let's consider a few things. Is it all right to use a medical treatment that was developed using unethical methods? If you say yes, then maybe, in that case, it's become a health treasure. Is it all right to use a medicine that was derived in part from an aborted fetal tissue or maybe even baby parts for our health? Is it acceptable to engage in occult practices, Christians, to solve a medical problem? 
Is it acceptable to utilize body parts and organs that are harvested from unwilling victims? Do you know that goes on all over the world? The center of it, of course, is China. Are any of these things okay as long as we can claim plausible deniability about it? Is it permissible to incorporate into our bodies human organs that are grown in another animal species? Is it all right to modify the instructional DNA that makes you uniquely human? Maybe to save your life or maybe to make your life more convenient or maybe to improve your physical performance or maybe to obtain abilities that you didn't previously have. Would you trust a scientist to do these things? Do you know the limitations of DNA technology? Do you know if DNA technology can be misused to control or alter human behaviors or desires? Do you know the hearts of those who would permanently alter you at the chromosomal level? All of these medical practices are taking place around the world at industrial scales today. They occur in standard medical and professional settings and are directed by respectable medical and scientific professionals. These are common practices. If you're a Christian, your body belongs to God. It's his temple, the living temple of the holy God. You are allowing people you don't know to tinker and play and experiment with his body. These are people often who do not worship God. These are people who believe they can make mankind better by making a better body. These are people who dream of merging man and machine so that we can eliminate disease, develop super capabilities, and live forever. This is called transhumanism, and it's the primary goal of the globalists who are controlling this COVID response. They want now what God has promised to give his people later on. The COVID response is at best a huge, uncontrolled, unprecedented biological experiment in genetic manipulation. It's gene therapy, if you want to call it therapy, which means gene modification. It is playing God by rewriting human genetic code to make it a gain of function that some scientists want it to be. What is a gain of function? It is a way of changing what your body naturally does through its genetic code to do something to gain a function that it doesn't normally have. They want your body to do something it's never done before. Does God approve of our messing with his genetic instructions? You know, this happened once before. Genetic changes were induced before by crossbreeding entities that were not supposed to crossbreed. It produced so many chimeric creatures that offended God's intended design on earth that he had to wipe out most living things on the planet. When asked what will be the sign of his return, Jesus said, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be, Matthew twenty-four thirty-seven. This cryptic line alludes to the actual reason for the great flood. It was not because mankind had become corrupt and evil in its collective heart. People have always been that way, and we still are. 
It's because the Watcher Angels left their realm to enter ours and in the process produced monstrosities that corrupted the genetic gene pool of the world. They crossbred with human beings. We are headed toward a kind of a repeat of this event, but this time human beings are driving the corruption in laboratories around the world. Revelation tells us that God is going to correct that same error a second time, but this time the correction will come in the form of fire instead of water. And by the way, I, I'm just going to add this and I'm not going to go into it right now. The angelic element of the first problem, the flood that led to the flood, is going to be an element of the second problem that's created by man. It's going to have the same kind of root cause, but I'll just leave it at that for now. One last item. Now, I hear a lot about the COVID shot being the mark of the beast, or some microchip. Every Christian knows that God said, no one who takes the mark of the beast will ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Every Christian knows that the Antichrist will have something called the mark of the beast, the Antichrist being the Antichrist, the opposite of Christ, who is going to lead the world into destruction in the end times. There are a lot of people out there who are saying that this COVID shot has to do with the mark of the beast. Is the COVID shot the mark of the beast? Well, first off, it can't be the mark of the beast because we don't yet know who the beast is. You can't take his mark if you don't know who he is. And you have to take his mark. That's part of the prophecy. Second, we will not know who the beast is for certain until he sits in the holy place and declares himself to be God. That is the event that definitively identifies him as the beast. That's a whole study unto itself, and we can get into that later. But it hasn't happened yet, and so we can't possibly know who the beast is. Third, only after that event can anyone decide to take the mark of the beast. Can't take the mark of the beast if you don't know who he is, so he's got to do that first. There's an element of choice involved in it. You can't be forced to take the mark. You can't be tricked into taking the mark but you can be induced, threatened, or persecuted into taking it, into, you know, pressuring you into taking it. The choice is going to be each individual person. And it's not going to say it's going to be an easy choice. Because if you don't take the mark of the beast, you're not going to be able to buy or sell or participate in the economy or do things that are necessary to basically live. So that's why in Matthew 16, 25, Jesus said, those who find their life will lose it. In other words, if you're going to do whatever it takes to live, you're going to end up losing the only life that really matters is the eternal one. And those who lose their life for my name's sake will find it. In other words, you lose your short-term corporeal life, you'll make it into the eternal kingdom. Now that said, the beast is going to use a system to control the buying and selling of merchandise, control the economy, so that he can induce people to worship him. Induce, that's kind of a polite word. Compel, it's maybe a stronger word. He will no doubt utilize a system like that which has you know, been pioneered by China, and which is being rolled out by the globalists around the world called the Great Reset. The Great Reset is a way of controlling basically everything. It makes the entire world a giant prison camp for everybody, except those who you know, control things. Now, it's possible that the beast system will be much easier to implement and harder to resist if people get inoculated with a substance that contains nanobots, little microscopic robots, and gene modification packages that go into our you know, genetic system and change it. 
because our government, especially the CIA, has been you know working for a long time on mind control sorts of things and how to control people's behavior. And I imagine scientists have been doing that you know for them, and they probably know quite a bit by now since they started doing this back in the 40s or 50s. So volunteering to take these shots on a regular basis may be the kind of conditioning that the beast could only dream of because, you know, once you get used to taking stuff like this, uh, you know, continuing it might be a natural thing for you to do. Now, I, I have no idea how these things might work, but I have great confidence that the people who deploy them and have been studying them for decades do. It's going to get really hard to resist the beast system that's going to be constructed around us. So I encourage those who seek godly wisdom to follow God and place your treasure where he is, not in your health that is tied to the minds of the globalists who want you to take whatever potions they decide to roll out. Now is the time to deploy a healthy dose of skepticism when it comes to health scares, stiffen our backbones in determination and muster that courage that God told us to have. We are witnessing the preliminary events that were foretold by Jesus that will lead inevitably to the beast system and ultimately Jesus' return. Now is the time for Christians to band together because we need common strength, comfort, and fortitude to resist this system and to help keep us from folding into the world system out of fear or a misplaced sense of treasure. We need each other, and that's why we should be talking about these things. So next up, on the next episode, the powers behind the world powers, or what is really driving this whole monstrous mess. Until then, keep yourself safe. Keep yourself safe from those who don't want to keep you safe. And keep your mind fixed on the goal so that we can keep a good attitude and we can do what we need to do as Christians. 